This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I always think that when you work on any project, the goal is ultimately to render the writer and the director invisible. So that therefore you do all the work that you do and you do all the research that you do to animate it in a way so that you'll feel like you're watching lives spilling towards you. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Raman Alam. Raman, we just heard the distinctive voice of theatre and movie director George C. Wolfe. I can't wait to talk about that conversation, but I'm curious how you're doing in what feels like a particularly weird time in this very weird year. In some ways, the holidays are just doing their usual steamroller through the calendar thing, but otherwise, this is still a totally atypical year. What's it like in your house? I I think it's a fitting end to an odd year. You know, I'm just as usual, I'm trying to finish up a last couple of assignments and, you know, sort of stumble into the break. I will say I think it's a mercy right now for us to have kids. My kids expect Christmas as usual. So, you know, we're going to bake cookies. We're going to open presents. We won't, unfortunately, have our usual big festive Meximus party, which is where we have as many people over as possible and serve Mexican food. And I'll definitely miss that ritual. And I think a lot of us are going to miss certain rituals. But, you know, we'll muddle through. That's so All right. A little earlier, I described George Seawolf as a theatre and film director, which is accurate, but also feels completely insufficient. For one thing, he's also a playwright. But what do people need to know about his work? Gosh, this is a case where we really need Isaac Butler, our co-host and resident (laughs) expert on the theatre. I know George's name because he directed Angels in America in its original Broadway run. He won a Tony for the play's first part, Millennium Approaches, But, you know, as you say, he's a polymath. He's a playwright, he's a producer, he's a director of film and theater. He's even an actor, as our Slate Plus listeners will hear a little later on. Yeah. In the interview, you talk about his work directing Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, maybe the biggest movie opening at the end of this year. Who's in it and what's it about? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is a 1982 play by August Wilson. It's part of his landmark Pittsburgh cycle, though this particular story is set in Chicago, The action takes place in a single day. Ma Rainey, the legendary blues singer, is due at a Chicago recording studio where she's going to make a record. And we get to know her backing band, including this brash young musician, Levy, played here by Chadwick Boseman in his final performance. Finally, Ma arrives at last, (laughs) and the session doesn't exactly go as planned. Hmm. And it's a musical, right? I wouldn't characterize this as a musical, but music is an important part of the experience. It's not like Cats or Singing in the Rain, (laughs) where the music carries the narrative forward. Mm. But we do hear the band play, and we do eventually hear Ma perform. There's a second vocalist supporting Viola Davis, who plays Ma Rainey, but you do get to hear the actress's voice. And the music, which is sexy and funny and powerful, adds a lot of texture to the play. Naturally, she can sing. There's nothing that woman can't do. I mean, her performance in this is really incredible. It's just incredible. It's really one of... She is such a scene stealer. She's such a star. (laughs) Watching watching her performance in this movie, she seems to be having such a good time. Mm. Uh, It's really an incredible performance. I cannot wait to see it. Before we get to the interview, I also want to mention that Slate Plus members will hear a little something extra from your conversation 
and this particular week it really is something. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> so, George Wolfe is an incredibly erudite and cultured man. So, it was with some trepidation that I asked him about the fact that he appears in the quite middle-brow film The Devil Wears Prada, which is a film I've seen more times than I care to admit, and certainly more than I care to admit to a man like George C. Wolfe. <laughs> Listeners, if you aren't yet a member of Slate Plus, first of all, what are you waiting for? But you can get a free two-week trial right now just by going to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Roman's conversation with George C. Wolfe. I should mention that the audio on Wolfe's side isn't the greatest. We're still not able to record in our studios, but it's really worth listening to. I want to start with a really basic question. When I was trying to think about what a director does, I was trying to land on like a metaphor. Is the director a coach? Is the director a collaborator? Is the director the center of attention? Is the director sort of a quiet force? Like, if you have to explain to your, someone who doesn't know what a director does, what is the metaphor you would use for your approach to that work? I don't think, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there is some brilliant metaphor for it. I just, I, you know, I, I, I look at what I do, regardless of what I do, whether it's writing a play or, 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 or directing a film. I think I'm, it's, it's, I'm a storyteller. And... And so when you are telling a story to be effective, you use every single thing that you possibly can use. If, they're, if it's using music, if it's using color, if it's using rhythm, if it's using whatever you can to lure an audience in so that they make themselves completely and totally vulnerable and available to the story that is being told. So if I am, you know, so therefore in film or, or whatever, in theater, whatever, I, you know, I'm working with, you know, I, I want I want to make sure that that the audience is uh, the people who are listening to me are are focusing their attention here and then here and then here. So I work in a very collaborative, um, you know, way with the production designer and with the DP, so that therefore their focus only the, so that your focus only goes where I want you to go, so that you can receive the story. Or if I'm working with the actors, it's therefore my job to make sure that they are clear about what they need to be clear about and that you know there are certain dynamics that I want to enhance are there other dynamics that I that are that are less important are they focusing on something that's interesting but it doesn't lead us to the next step so therefore I talk to them I collaborate with them so that therefore they are contributing their part to the story same thing with costumes same thing with everything so that therefore I I'm it's my job to work with everybody so that everybody involved in the storytelling is helping to tell the exact same story and that nobody is veering off in a direction that is telling an aspect of the story that would distract from the potency of of how strongly and, and, and purely, for lack of better words, the audience can receive the story that is being told. We're talking about your new film, which is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's a famous play by August Wilson. You worked with the writer Ruben Santiago Hudson to adapt that story, which was conceived for the stage, for the medium of film. What's the difference for you when you're directing theatrically than when you're directing for film? I don't think that, I mean, I think directing is directing. I mean, I think you, I mean, you know, there, you, you have a whole lot more toys when you're, when you're directing a film. But I think, I mean, in terms of the conversations that I have with actors, I don't think they differ in terms of the conversations that I have, you know, the, the, the one primary difference is, you. I think the one primary difference is, because there are parallels to everything, but I think what doesn't exist in the theater at all is the relationship with the DP. And the DP becomes, in my mind, a character in the story that is being told. And so sometimes that character is witnessing the story with an incredible degree of objectivity. And other times, they're they're witnessing the story subjectively and they only see and know what is happening in that moment pure that's it and so you're you're perpetually shifting in terms of what is going to be your perspective so so that's very different i mean i just think that it's different but not and because you're because what you're doing is you're making a you're involved in making a series of very specific decisions very, sometimes those decisions are incredibly anal and minute and annoying 
And sometimes those decisions are very large and sweeping, but they're all contributing. So how to get an audience to make themselves totally vulnerable as much as you possibly can to the stakes of what's happening in front of them. And, and also, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about Ma Rainey as a play because I never directed it. And I saw it back in 1984, which is a very long time ago. So my job wasn't to think about it as a play and then, oh, how do I translate it from a play to a film? My job was to think about it from, as a film right off the bat. And so that's what I did. And so I played a little game that with myself, like this was always intended to be a film. And so how do I do that? And, and, and it's got such incredibly thick, thick, intense, glorious language. I need to come up with a visual equivalent that will allow that language to breathe and allow this story to breathe and, and also to work with the actors so that the language is flowing as effortlessly as possible so that therefore the audience isn't stuck on the outside witnessing the brilliance of the language but is inside the stakes of what the characters are going through. You know, and then you make a series of choices that complement that and then you figure out if there's any other dynamics that you need to add to the equation so as to magnify the journey that the audience goes on as well. And so I said, oh, well, you know, Ma Rainey has a language. She says, um, I don't like it up here no how, so I can take my ass back down south, you know, where I belong. And so if you're thinking about 1927, the, the vast majority of people think of Black people over in a corner hiding from the Klan with Jim Crow laws and statues of Jefferson Davis in the square, and you can't do this, you can't do that. But for Ma Rainey, the South is a place of power. So it goes, oh, it's my responsibility to make sure that that dynamic is clear so that therefore when she ends up in Chicago, she ends up Chicago as a person who is coming from a power base, who has her own agency, who has her own entertainment, you know, empire, if you will. And so that therefore she's not entering into the equation powerless, she's entering into the equation as someone who has an alternative to their authority and is used to being the authority figure. So, so all these things, I think, aid in the understanding of the stakes and what's going on and why she's like she is and why everybody is like that. And also for Chicago, which was a very interesting, challenging place, you know, 100,000 Black people moved there from, from 1900 to 1920, but not everybody was invited to that party. And, and in as much as you're receiving a wage that is healthier than chances are what you were receiving in the South, the conditions were oftentimes very brutal. So it just becomes, how do you create a context so the audience understands the stakes of all the characters? The stakes for Ma Rainey, who really doesn't give a crap about Chicago, who really doesn't give a crap about the North, and who really doesn't give a crap about anybody but what she thinks and knows is best, versus somebody like Levy, who sees the North as this extraordinary place and and where, where every single possibility he's ever wanted to experience, he can, it can happen in this city on this very hot summer day. You mentioned that you saw this play in 1984. And did you have any other particular relationship to the text or to August Wilson's body of work? So more broadly speaking, when this project came to you. You you talked about the language and about the necessity for you of creating a film that communicated the depth or, you know, the sort of beauty of Wilson's language. So is that like your entry point? Like do you require as a director an emotional entry point into the text? Like can you just take any old play and say, okay, I will do this? I didn't once again I didn't think about, oh, how I don't know. I, 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 it's not take any old play because I don't do any old yeah. play. But, but also, you know, August's work, like Eugene O'Neill's in some respect, they're, they're fascinating musical compositions to me. They're very, you know, I, I just directed, you know, a year or so ago, I directed, you know, Denzel in Iceman Comet, and it's a lot of language. And some of that language feels incredibly repetitive, and it is repetitive. And some of that language, the, the repetitions are glorious. And so you have to get inside of it and figure out how to make it live. And if I were to film, you know, Long Day's Journey tonight, I would, I would go on the exact same process. But I think my job is to get inside of the material. And that is, doesn't just mean language, but get inside the characters and figure out 
It's not about me turning it into what I think it should be, even though ultimately that's what I'm really doing. It's about me digging inside of the material and trying to understand what I believe the writer is writing about and then crafting a world and a landscape and an environment and a tone and a mood that would allow what I understand that the writer is writing about to breathe in a very strong, compelling way. And so I think that's my job is to go excavating and to figure out a way how to, it's not a recital, so you just don't stand there and recite the words. I always think that when you work on any project, the goal is ultimately to render the writer and the director invisible. So that therefore you do all the work that you do and you do all the research that you do to animate it in a way so that you'll feel like you're watching lives spilling toward you, mm-hmm. whether it's over the footlights or whether it's on a big giant screen or whether it's on your little laptop, mm-hmm. you know, watching it. You're, you're, you're watching the lives just spill toward you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the people feel like they're in charge of those decisions and other times those decisions feel like they're, they're running to catch up to decisions that have been made from them. And so you just have to craft that in a way that becomes compelling, strong, and interesting, I believe. So, of course, this is a play that is set in Chicago, and you spoke a little bit earlier about the Great Migration. When you are taking on a work like this, is part of your directorial homework to do other kinds of reading or other kinds of thinking, or are you operating from a place of instinct or understanding about the text at hand? Like, no, of course not. No, no, you do you do research. You anything you do, you 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 know, any job you have, you need to be as smart about it as you possibly can. You don't just go instinct. You let me operate on this brain. <laughs> you know, you know, hopefully you're you're a surgeon, but also you're gonna you're gonna research, know that body, know the dynamics, know new know as much as you possibly can. And also I, I, I love and I'm fascinated by history. So in any project I do, I try to absorb as much as I possibly can so that I'm putting that in my body so that my history and the understanding of, of the music and the rhythm and the mores and, and, the, and the racial, social, cultural politics of the moment are at play. There was, a, there was this huge riot. There were all these riots happened in 1919. And there was this, you know, a young black boy was swimming in Lake Michigan and he inadvertently crossed some boundary and into the white area of Lake Michigan. And the, you know, a bunch of white people drove him out into the lake until he drowned. And, um, and then this huge, you know, riot erupted in which many people were killed. And that's 1919. And, and so those, those, that sense of territorialism is very much so present in Chicago to this very day. And so it definitely was very present in 1927. And there was a lot of conversation that Ruben and I had, where is, where is this recording studio? Where is this recording? Is it in a black neighborhood? Is it in a white neighborhood? Is it a black and white neighborhood? You know, one of the interesting things is that Paramount uh, Records, who Ma Rainey recorded with, was, had inferior recording equipment and was positioned behind a chair-making factory in Chicago. So it just became very interesting to me to set it inside of an industrial working class, predominantly white, no white neighborhood. And so that afforded a whole series of, of, of decisions. And so that, therefore, when these musicians appear and get off the L trade, they're walking into an environment and a landscape where they do not belong. You know, mm. and, and, and or when they go across the street to looking for a Coca-Cola for Ma, you know, it's a Polish, it's a Polish, you know, deli. They do not belong. It's not necessarily that anybody's going to kill them at that point, but there is a sense of territorialism that is really fascinating. There are signs in the South saying colored and white. There are no signs up North, but there's just as much territorialism mm-hmm. to this very day mm-hmm. about where you belong and where you don't belong, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so all of that information informs a whole series of visuals. Mm-hmm. You know, that Ma Rainey owned two theaters. I have a, you know, I ended up getting a list of her touring circuit for 1927. I think it was for 1927 of what cities she, 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 she toured around. Uh, and, you know, or that there was a article in, in Vanity Fair in 1926 in which Carl Ben Vecton, the white intellectual, lists um, Bessie Smith and Clara Smith and Ethel Waters as the 
preeminent blues singers, you know. So that's very, you know, and that I, that magazine was sitting next to the table where Ma ends up sitting for a number of times. But it's also it's it's in the lore of the day, so it's very clear that one Ma has not been accepted into white intellectual circles of the East Coast. But also, it's clear that she is in the process of being usurped. Mm. So everything is a clue. Everything is a clue. You know, um, some things are dumb clues and some things are really thrilling clues. And so you just have to distinguish that which is important and that which is not. So how long is your process of this kind of preparation and research and sort of intellectual inquiry into the text before you get the actors together and begin a period of rehearsal? Like, how much time did you spend doing the kinds of thinking and reading that you're talking about? Well, when I, as soon as I figure out I'm doing a project or I say yes to doing something, I begin, you know, you know, I happen to be, I've been stuck in the twenties. I've done a lot of stuff in the twenties. One, because it's an extraordinary period in world culture, but very much so in American culture. So I, so I've lived there a lot, but also, you know, but it was, it was interesting just digging into Chicago and, 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 you know, I, it's, 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 part of it's 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 a part of my favorite time working on a project because then you're you're I remember I did a, it was a very interesting I, I remember I did a production of the Tempest in Shakespeare in the park many years ago and and I went into rehearsal and I came up and it was you know and I came up with then it was set inside a giant sand pit and there were all these sort of like um you know, non-Western visuals that were employed in terms of the storytelling. And I just knew that I had, and I was coming up with them and I was coming up with them and I was coming up with them while we were in rehearsal. And then I finished the production and then three or four months later, I opened up a notebook which had drawings that I had made of various theatrical techniques that were used in the play that I had forgotten about and I ended up quote unquote discovering while I was working on the play. And so I think the whole process is to learn as much as you possibly learn, can learn and then forget it <laughs> and assume that it's going to come out in an organic way or as opposed to in a forced comprise. Right. So that's the process. And, and there have been times where um, there have been times where the, the, the organic nature of that discovery, I didn't have enough time to make that information organic. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was playing catch up, mm -hmm. but uh, knock on wood, that hasn't happened for a while. I'm going to ask you a really basic question, which is, what is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom about? And is that a question that you have to answer for yourself as the director before you start any of this work? Like, do you have to understand the objective of the work of art, the destination, before you can start putting together a production? Well, I think you answer that question 10 times. You answer that question when you read something, and then after you dig into it, you say, oh, it's about something else. And then once you go through a rehearsal process with the actors, you go, oh, it's about that. And then when you're filming it, you figure out something else. And then when you sit down and edit, you go, oh, no, it's about this. So I, I, don't, I don't think... One, I don't believe art is static. I think it's either, it's either growing or it's dying. So I think your information and understanding is either expanding or it's shrinking. Hopefully it continues to expand while you're working on the project and it shrinks once you're done. You know, at one point I thought it was about the commodification of Black culture. Another point I thought it was about ownership. Who owns your song? And how far are you willing to take that fight to control your song and your story, you know? And then other times I thought it was about an artist being terrified of what's next. So I think it's all about all of that. And I think it's about a shifting. So I think Ma is terrified about what's next. And Levy represents what's next. He's also an incredibly arrogant, you know, charismatic, wonderful, charming, clueless human being who has the stupidity to go after his boss's girlfriend. So that doesn't help. Uh, but he also has an acute understanding of what's coming next. I mean, Ma Rainey is, Ma Rainey is making music, you know, at the exact same time Duke Ellington is, you know, their radio broadcast from the Cotton Club, where Duke Ellington and his sophisticated harmonics 
are filling the airwaves. And Ma Rainey is a jug fan, and it's reflective of the of the, of a sound of the South that is can be directly linked and traced back to slavery. So those things are coexisting at the exact same time, you know. And so, so I think there is for Ma, it's a fear of the future, and Levy is the future, except for he also has a haunted past, you know. And also, Ma has these uh, stories about they just want to take my voice and trap it in those little boxes and dials. You know, and and at the same time, Chicago and Detroit and all these urban cities, not New York, interestingly enough, uh, were were really interesting because of the industrialization of you know and black labor. So you so I have I found this wonderful image of all these women, interestingly enough, rolling cigarettes. And mm. who knew that <laughs> that one of the main sources of employment for black people, uh, women who had moved to Chicago was rolling cigarettes in Chicago. And I went, well, that's kind of boring. So I turned it into sewing machines so I could get there. So I could get the sound of that, the, the, the sound of, of people's lives and, and souls being ingested by machinery. So it's, you know, so it's, I think it's, so it shifts. So your understanding of what you think you're doing shifts, but what you understood last week is still present in the work and the conversations that you are doing as you go forward with the work. So I'm struck by you mentioning like a sort of like a, that art has to, that it can't be static, right? And so one of the choices that you and Ruben Santiago Hudson, who wrote the screenplay made were to set the action the film takes place in one day during a recording session to set this in the summer instead of the winter as Wilson originally wrote it. So I'm curious, I mean, you know, like when you're doing Shakespeare and you decide to set the Tempest in a sand pit, you know, Shakespeare, like there is that flexibility there because you're talking about a text that's centuries old and that directors have been playing with for a long time. It's different. August Wilson has not even, he died this century, right? So he's a different kind of, but do you feel as a director that you always have to be able to take that license? And how do you determine like, what is license and what is, you know, what would be outside the bounds? What would be wrong for the text or too much? I, I, you, I, that's for you or whoever else is reviewing to say I crossed the boundary. I have to go on a discovery process that I must go on to. And I, you know, I, it, it just became very interesting to me because heat becomes very important to me and, and, and the heat of the storytelling. So it's like I, you have to check in with yourself and you say, you know, I, I have no intention of violating this material at the same time. I can't stand back in, and be in awe of it. I've got to form a relationship with it. And I've got to trust that my intelligence, my integrity, and my taste are of value, which I think they are. And so, therefore, any work that I dig inside of, you know, it's, I, I, I'm hopefully going to go on the journey of figuring out uh, how to animate the play. And I think heat serves the intensity of the stakes much more than cold weather does because urban, urban heat is horrible. Yeah. Urban heat is unrelenting. Urban heat is brutal. And so, you know, it just became a fun visual for me, not just fun as in haha fun, but just fun just in the sense of a way to, you know, your, your, this heat and, and the suffocation becomes an interesting, uh, not only a metaphor, but a physical reality. So that therefore, Ma Rainey demanding a Coca-Cola is not just temperament. It's hotter than shit in there, you know? And on a very hot day, you know, I love the fact that, you know, the brilliant Ann Roth, yeah, I don't know where this came from, gave her a little fur yeah. piece, which is the most yeah. inappropriate thing in the summer. But she bought it, she looks good in it, and she's going to wear it. And it's just, and it further accentuates how wrong she is in that hotel when she's strutting through. And that, and that piece of, you know, that piece of fur that she has on, it looks good and she's going to wear it, period, that's it. And so it, it, it's a chance to inform and illuminate the work. And, and, and I think that Ruben has an unbelievable degree of reverence and respect for August Wilson. And I think I have a very healthy lack of reverence for August Wilson so that therefore it can, so that the work can breathe, you know, I, it's, um, 
yeah, you know, artists are artists don't artists are, don't belong in museums. Mm. Artists belong, and particularly, I think, you know, playwrights. You know, they're they they the work lives in mm. the moment. The work lives in the potency and um, in, in the potency of the moment. And uh, I don't know, that's <laughs> it. Don't have to say about that. So. We'll be back with more of Roman's conversation with George C. Wolfe after this. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ramon, Isaac, and I love to ask questions of amazing people like George C. Wolfe, but we also really love to give advice. If you have questions about creative work, whether it's getting down to it, how to take a next step, or whatever you'd like to know, Give us a ring at 304-933-WORK or drop us a line at working at slate.com. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. OK, let's get back to the episode. I want to ask you, so you mentioned Ma, played by Viola Davis, is shining with sweat. She's wearing her little fur piece. She's got this like beautiful full body She's really giving this sort of like athletic and full-bodied performance. Before she can get there, though, she demands this Coke. The way in which Viola Davis drinks this Coke is one of the most extraordinary non-verbal performative choices I think I've seen in a film in a long time. And I wonder if you could talk about where something like that comes from. Does it just come from the performer? Does it come from a conversation with you? Did you know that it was right when you saw it? Is it something that you discovered when you were editing? Like, what was that moment about? Well, I just wanted, I just wanted, you know, Ma, I, 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 I love, I, I love Ma, I, I love Ma Rainey's sort of brilliant suddenness. Like, I, I, I fought, I earned, I sweated, I know what I need to do, what I need to do, period. That's it. And so she demands the Coke and she got, she has like three Cokes on that tray. She could have said, would anybody <laughs> like one? <laughs> she does not. And that became this, that became, I just live. So when we come back to where we've been, we, everybody in the room is watching and waiting for her to finish their Coke. You know, and so I, I, you know, I checked with my I said, put as much in the coat as you can and just don't stop drinking. And she did it brilliantly. And everybody is waiting for her to finish. And, you know, I made sure I had the coverage of everybody going. People who love her and are devoted to her are sitting there going, you're really not going to offer me any of this coat. And it's just, it's just this wonderful display of artist narcissism. Yeah. And she's going to make everybody wait. And I don't know if she's going to make everybody wait because they doubted Sylvester's ability to do the song or she's going to make everybody wait. I'm not sure how calculated it is but or or because Irvin didn't want to pay for it or because Sturdivant got up in her face, but she is demanding this moment. And it, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's just as Frank Sinatra would demand his moment just as any number of diva performers would demand what they need 
and that, you know, and, and that coat would be there. And Irving would not forget that coat if it were anybody else. He would not forget it. And so she's got a, you know, whether or not she's calculated in her punishment of him, but I'm going to take my time and I'm in yeah. charge and it's my voice. And all those things, she's in her mind, she's earned it. And it, it just was this wonderful, this was this wonderful moment for, and now everybody will wait while I drink this coat. It's, yeah, it's true that it's a very tiny moment, but it is very eloquent. It holds everything that you've just said, and it's just this shot of a woman drinking a soda, but it, the way that it sounds, the way that it goes, it's just, it's extraordinary. You are a Black director, you're working with a, the work of a Black playwright, you're collaborating with a Black screener, you have some of the best-known Black actors working today in the leading performances, you have this extraordinary ensemble of Black performers, you know, in the supporting performances. Can you... Tell me, like, not just in this cultural moment, but just broadly speaking, the significance or like, what is the role or the import of Black art in this culture? And like, is that something that you're thinking of as you work on a project like this? No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how anything could be about Black women and not be about America. I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's possible. I, I think it, you know, we, you know, the, from since prior to the dawn of this country, there. There were black people there. There were songs. There were stories. There were truth. And so I, I don't. Yeah, everybody's black, but that's yeah, including August. But uh, it's to me, Levy is America. Levy is Levy is very much so a 32, 34 year old black man in 1927 Chicago. But he is, you know, he is metaphorically, and he is America. He is a person who has this extraordinary sense of what is possible. He has this dream of what the future can be. He has a vision of the future. He has knowledge about the shifting trends in music. He is very aware of that which is coming next. And then he is haunted by a violence in his past. Mm -hmm. And to me, ultimately, that's what I think, going back to our earlier question, that's what I think this story is about, is... Is it, is it possible for America to have a future without coming to terms with and healing from and addressing the scars of the past? Mm. And so, and so I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I think that, that, you know, Black American culture is American culture, mm-hmm. and which is not to negate its blackness, but its, its 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 expanse and its reach is so large and so deep and so defining. You know, and uh, that that I don't think it, it exists inside of some it, it exists inside of some kind of bubble. I think that you know, it's it's very curious to me that this was the first play of August's, the only play of the canon that's not set in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that has a, uh, is based on a real character. It's the only one that's based, mm-hmm. that has a, 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 you know, a LGBTQ character. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's about, you know, and it, it, it's about that journey north. It's about what happens to those rhythms and to those people and to the culture that they're coming from when they joined when they left the South and joined and joined the North, and then all the rest of the plays are set in Pittsburgh on the hill. And so there are in many respects, so this is a weird kind of prologue, even though I think it's the third or fourth play in the cycle. So it's 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 very interesting to me. So I don't, you know, the specificity of me being from Frankfort, Kentucky, and being the age that I am, and all that other sort of stuff, some aspect of that applies to um the the story of this and some aspects of that doesn't. The same thing when I directed Angels in America on Broadway. Mm. Some aspects of me were could find themselves. I'm not a Mormon and I couldn't find myself, but I but I understand other dynamics and uh, and other pieces of me were at play. So I you know and that play which is very specifically you know it, it's very specifically set in a very particular time in this country, but it's about America. It's about the soul and core of America. And so I think really great writing really great writing 
speaks to the specificity, but it also speaks to the expanse. Mm. I remember very specifically, I remember very specifically, I did this production of Spunk, which is three short stories by Zora Neale Hurston. And it opened up at the public theater, then it went to London, and it ended up at the, the, the same production. It ended up at the Mark Taper Forum in LA. And I was leaving backstage one time and this Asian woman who looked to be probably in her 60s stopped me and she had a poster and she said to me, she said, are you connected with this? I said, yes, I am. And she went on to explain the first story, which is called Sweat, about, and she was explaining it, how the woman can work really hard and she can be with a man who doesn't appreciate the value. And she went on and told the story back to me as she understood it, and she completely and totally had found either herself mm. or a similar situation inside of something that did not look like her mm. and did not operate from rhythms that were her, her own rhythm, but she had totally found herself inside of that. And, and to me, it was, you know, the, the, that piece was all about the power dynamics between men and women and the, the search for some equation of equality was it possible in relationships? And so, but she found herself totally inside of this thing. And I think that's the wonder of great writing and great storytelling, the potency of the details when informed by eloquence of language and depth of understanding about the human condition becomes something that hopefully empowers anybody who's in the presence of it. Mm. So you mentioned that Ma Rainey is a part of a larger cycle of work by August Wilson, which is known as the Pittsburgh cycle, I believe, colloquially, although this play is, of course, set in Chicago. Now, I think I I could be wrong, but I believe that Denzel Washington, who produced this production, um, Mm -hmm. is aiming to see screen adaptations of every every component of that that body of work. Do you think that the stage... Uh, that the screen, rather, has supplanted the stage as the medium in the culture? And, like... No. 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 Right now, there's no theater because of this damn pandemic. But, no, because there is, there is you know, the, the thing which is what I... You know, the, the thing which is what I... I, I, I love about theater is that... It's a completely and totally communal experience. Everybody gathers. It's one of the reasons why the shutdown has happened because it's bodies on top. It's bodies on top of each other in the audience. Bodies on top of each other on stage. Bodies on top of each other backstage. But but and and so that that's speaking to its frailty right now. But that's its potency as well. That it is you know a group of strangers come together, become in theory a collective and experience this wondrous event. It, 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 it's, it's church, it's storytelling, it's all of that. And so there's an extraordinary value to that. The same way there is an incredible value to sitting and reading a book, you know? People, a lot of people can talk, a lot of things, but there's nothing like the intimacy of a person reading a book. There's nothing like about like the intimacy of the theater. And I think there's an incredible potency, you know, I wish people could see this film, you know, in a movie theater because it mm. takes on another unbelievable degree of potency when you see these mythic people living out these painful, mm. fragile truths. So, uh, so I mm. think there's a place for it all. No, I don't think you, you, you know, I, I despise that Broadway. I despise with the core of my very existence that Broadway is mm. as expensive as it is, but not all, all theater is that expensive. And I think there's a potency and and there is nothing. I my metaphor for theater versus film is that when you are witnessing theater and it's affecting you, you lean forward in your seat because the people that you are watching are of the same size as you, and so you're recognizing yourself. When you watch film and it's having an impact, you tend to lean back in your seat because the scale of it is so much larger than you. The mm-hmm. figures are mythic. The figures take on another kind of potency. And so, you know, 
there is so I think that's reflective of how you experience it and it's and it's and it's uh potency and importance so as you said the pandemic has really crippled live performance obviously you have been busy this year in probably in post-production on this movie but I'm curious to know in this now that the year is ending right this interview will air right at the end of the year what your own sort of how you kept yourself sustained creatively during this period of not having access to that communal experience of theater going, what did you see? What did you read? What did you love this year that meant something to you? Well, I've I've been, uh, while I finished up my movie, I was was three weeks away from finishing it post when the shutdown happened. And then, and I was, and I knew it was coming. So I was just working and driving everybody insane. (laughs) And then it and then it shut down, and then I was forced to stand still, and um, and I hadn't stood still in a very very long time, and so that was actually once I got over the horror and the shock of it, that was actually sort of quite wonderful, and um, and so I've been writing. I've been you know first I finished my film, but I've also been writing and digging in on those stories inside of me which are incomplete that which I needed to complete. So that's primarily what I've done. And um, then going back and rereading journals and stuff, I don't know, it's, it's like, you know, I think it's, um, you know, I've done 17 Broadway shows. I don't know how many more I want to do. I just don't know. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out what matters in terms of storytelling for me and what I need to do next. And, um, and I've been ordering, I've been ordering where I live and, and trashing crap <laughs> and, and getting rid of crap that no longer has me. <laughs> I feel you know? like we've all, a lot of us have spent this pandemic doing that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I, 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 no, no, go away. Go yeah. on. You're done. That's it. Um, you know, you yourself were an actor as a younger person. Actors are always making these very tiny choices that have to do with much more than just the way they deal with the language, right? Like I mentioned the way Viola Davis drinks a Coke in this film is just like an extraordinary choice. The way Chadwick Boseman laughs, he has this sort of like very boyish, almost manic laugh that is sort of sweet and then seems like deranged as the film goes on. What's the director's role? What's your responsibility? Like, are you guiding those? Are you providing feedback? Like, do you stay out of the way? Like, how do you negotiate that dif- that difference between the, the performer's choice and what you want for the film as a director? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, I've said this many times, I think the two schools of acting, which is you either demand actors come to your understanding of what a role is, or you go to their understanding and then you talk, cajole, listen, play, and get them and, and get them to come to your understanding of it. And, and I think it's, a, you know, and I think that what's really interesting is that when you have a company of incredibly skilled actors, as I did, you know, I think one of the, one of the primary jobs is to make them feel safe. And so that therefore, a lot of times, actors are cast in the, in the position of having to protect themselves from a director's intrusiveness. And one of the things that, because I think in part because I was an actor and because I actually really authentically adore them, actors, I, I, I love talking to them and I like to talk to them and I think I know how to talk to them. So that therefore, you know, I, I work very hard to never tell an actor no, because I think when you step on an actor's impulses, they, an aspect of their performance never recovers. So I think that one of the dynamics is to create safety and to evolve a language of communication with them. And that when they do work, you know, you, you offer up an opinion that, you know, what do you think about this? Or what about this? Or what about this? And you're just dropping tiny thoughts, which sometimes are connected to tiny moments and sometimes are connected to larger moments. And, and you're dropping those thoughts and you're, and then you're stepping back and seeing how they process it. You know, I would never say to an actor, sit down in the chair like this. 
because that's stupid. They are they are very smart people, not, not just smart actors, but smart people. And they've lived on the planet X amount of time. And as a result of it, they know secrets about the human condition that are very rare and very unique. And when you create that environment of safety, those secrets start to come up and they inform the work in a very textured way. And so I, I, I like to create an environment where everybody feels free to not know, where everybody feels free to discover, where everybody feels free to figure it out. One, some of my most favorite times of working on a project is the period where you don't know what you're doing because then that combustion of facts and impulses and intellect and so emerge with something that is interesting and surprising and startling. And, um, and so that's the journey. That's, that's the journey. In the theater, you have six straight weeks of do that, to do that. Five, you know, five generally five weeks of rehearsal, then a, a week of tech, and then you have previews. And I, in theater, I use a lot of previews because I change and alter and, and fix things. And it's a chance to figure out, you know, now that the audience is there, what rhythms are playing and what what are. And in the film, with our we have our intensive two week rehearsal. But then when you're directing them, you're trying to get as many variables as you possibly can. So therefore, when you're sitting in an editing room, you have this vast array of choices and and sometimes a choice that was raw and potent the day of gives way to a choice that was smaller mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you know so you never know and you mm-hmm. then so you so you so you try to create as much of a range as you possibly can so that therefore when you go into an editing room i think I, if i would when i first did my first film which is like a one of blues i had this theater to film dictionary going on inside my head and in some respects the editing process is the real rehearsal process for Mm -hmm. a director in Mm -hmm. film Mm -hmm. because you're calibrating the work and you're calibrating the storytelling Mm -hmm. well it's an extraordinary film it was really such a pleasure to talk to you george i really appreciate your time thank you Ruman, what a fabulous interview. So many smart things. And I genuinely feel now that I have a better understanding of the differences that a director can make to a play or a movie. One thing that really struck me was his repeated references to luring people in, like to making things clear for audience members and actors alike, and to always having a sense of what he wants people to focus on. It's a view of the director as the person in charge of clarity. This is a very seductive movie, so you really get to see that firsthand. And to George's point, there's a scene early in the film in which we see Ma Rainey depart her fashionable hotel in Chicago for the recording session. There's no dialogue, but somehow it explains so much to see her walking through the lobby of this hotel, and we see her through the eyes of Black society of that period. Mm -hmm. She's sort of gaudy, she's unapologetic, I can't think of anything that might better lure an audience in than watching Viola Davis chew the scenery without saying a word. Amazing. Uh, in the plus segment, we heard that Wolf acted in his student days. I mentioned this nugget from a plus question, not only to remind people of the benefits of Slate Plus membership, but because, as he notes in the main interview, one view of writers and directors, his view as it happens, is that they should be invisible. That someone watching the play or musical or movie shouldn't think that it was written or directed, but rather that it was like a series of events that happened and emotions that were felt. That's compelling, but Wolf is a really brilliant guy, a guy with a justified ego. So it surprises me that he went into a field that can or maybe even should be invisible. Um, How much do you think we should be aware of the presence of the puppeteers in art? I think it's akin to the relationship that I have with my editors or, you know, that Slate podcast hosts have with their producers. In our conversation, George mentioned that the costume designer, Anne Roth, gave Ma this little fur stole. This, despite it's a hot summer day, right? And Ma wears it throughout the film. It's a small but important gesture that actually does affect how the audience understands this film and this character. And I guess to do this kind of work, you have to be comfortable with knowing that the audience might never hear your name, but that Mm. you contributed in some very essential way all the same. Yeah. I loved hearing his view that 
a director shouldn't say no to an actor, which doesn't mean that he should go along with the actor's instincts, but just that there are other ways of shaping their choices. This really struck me as psychological trickery, you know, how to talk so kids will listen, only (laughs) applied to actors. You know, again, the only analogous experience I have in my own life is working with editors. And the good editors I work with rarely say no to something. Instead, they trick me into doing precisely what they most want for a piece. It's very canny. I have to tell you, there's a kind of reciprocal view where I always... um, really notice the kinds of things that writers push back on. Um, You don't want somebody who just pushes back and everything. Really, what is the point? In that case, you're just like, you're not paying attention. But if they just really stick up for themselves on a couple of places, being very judicious about what that is, you kind of get them a sense of somebody with something to say rather than, ah, what a pain. Yeah. so there, it is very psychological, I think. I yeah, think I think right. I really do think it is. I think it's about sort of this complicated tug of war. And I think that, you know, hearing a director of George's caliber talk about working with actors of the caliber that he's directing in this film and mm. throughout his career, it makes sense that you wouldn't tell Meryl Streep how to sit down <laughs> in a seat, yeah. you know. And But it also makes sense that he as the director needs to be able to inform or help shape the performance that an actor like Meryl Streep is delivering. Yeah. When you asked him about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you said, what is it about? He offered three or four really interesting, you know, topics, including commodification of black culture, creative ownership, artosphere change. Now, I haven't yet seen the movies, but I'm curious if those were the things that stood out to you too. Absolutely. I think on a very accessible level, the film is a very powerful indictment of the ways in which culture subsumes Black artistic product. But I also think that there is a deeper resonance in the film that certainly George is conscious of and maybe just didn't want to talk about, but the play very dramatically captures something much, much bigger, the way that Americans, Black or white, bear the burden of a dynamic as old as the transatlantic slave trade. You know, the way it burdened us at the start of this century you know, this is a play that's happening in the 1920s, Mm. is indeed the way that it continues to affect us. Mm. It was interesting to hear Wolf talk about having devoted so much of his creative life to projects set in the 1920s. Um, You had a sense that in a way he really did live in this era in his mind. Um, I believe your novels are all set in contemporary America, but is there a historical period you are drawn to exploring in the future? So I have two things to say to you. The first is that the horrifying realization that my second book, which is set in the 1980s, may actually qualify as historical (laughs) fiction. But the truth is that I don't really trust myself. I think it's really easy to be seduced by research, by doing reading that allows you to feel like you're working, but not really producing anything. But I really enjoyed hearing George's command over historical detail. It clearly grounded his interpretation of the text in this film. So, you know, that research is worthwhile. You just cut me to the quick, too. I'm one of those people who really enjoys doing all that reading. And now you've made me realize, (laughs) yeah, he's got nothing to show for that. But you sure read some nice books there. Um, I love your question about what he's been doing when his usual just wasn't possible. I'm sure this is a guy who is gadding about and working constantly in normal times. And I was glad to hear that someone has had success in organizing his life and his space. Are you one of those people who brought order to chaos during the pandemic and forced indoor time? It is funny to hear that even the sort of like significant cultural figure is doing the same thing that (laughs) we're doing, which is sort of cleaning out the closets. That sort of thing is a constant in my household. It's a Sisyphean task. We have (laughs) so many books, so many art supplies, so many toys. You know, my own family had two free yard sales, and I've passed (laughs) along so many bags of hand-me-down clothes and shoes, and there's still much to get to over the holidays. We just, we own too many things, I think, Uh, you know. No, it's not, we don't own too much, it's just that our apartments are too small. Maybe that's it. (laughs) Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you a Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. But more importantly, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial right now at slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to our guest, George C. Wolfe. 
This episode was produced by Morgan Flannery. Next week, we'll have a special episode in which June, Isaac, and I answer your questions about creativity. Until then, get back to work. Thank you.